Make sure everyone uh, gets their last cup of coffee. I'm tired of bringing those donuts home, so we get the donuts. I realized donuts for like New Year's resolution, we should probably do a downsize on donuts New Year's resolution because everyone's like, eh, I'm going to stay away from the donuts. I'm probably going to come home with like two boxes of donuts. Yeah, all right. <laughs> come on, think to this. Well, good morning. Glad to be with you guys. This is always a fun season of ministry, or uh, I guess I should say preaching for me. It's a little unusual for our church. Typically, we take a book of the Bible and just march through it. Uh, more or less verse by verse, more theme by theme. And um, we always take the first time, I guess, the first month of the year and then the first month in fall to spend time looking at our mission or our vision of the church to really refocus us, to remind us who we are as a church and what it is we do. And this uh, month we're going to be spending time looking at the mission of our church. And now I define the mission of the church as something that you do. They're marching orders. It's what you're supposed to get accomplished. And that's to be distinguished between a vision, which is the very thing you hope to accomplish. This, this idea is a vision. It's you see it. It's what you do accomplishes. It's what gets done. And so we're going to really look at what we do. And if you want to know what we do and want to know really easily what the mission of our church is, it is that motto that John mentioned is to be loved and to love. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be studying this concept or this mission that our church has to be loved and to love. Our scripture comes from 1 John 4, 7-12. through 12, And uh, there should have been verse 19. I have it memorized. It is my life verse. So if it's like, where is verse 19? I'm going to recite it off the top of my head. It's a great verse um, to memorize and to put into your brain because it is, to me, the most... Um, it's, it's the verse that captures everything, really, for me. But before that, let us jump into God's Word, starting at verse 7 from 1 John, which is a letter, by the way. This is what the Apostle John says to the church. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In verse 19, it's not in your bulletin, it says this, We love because He first loved us. This past year, one of the most influential things that I watched was Ken Burns' documentary on the Vietnam War. And for me, one of the things that stood out, and I had a vague understanding of the Vietnam War, but one of the things that stood out in this documentary, amongst many things, was the mission that the American military settled on in its mission in Vietnam. The mission of the Vietnam War essentially boiled down was this, to kill as many of the northern Vietnamese soldiers as possible while limiting American casualties. Now this is a very strange mission. Now I'm not going into the wisdom of it. I'm not even going into the critique of it. But it was something that brought a lot of criticism from people in the country and from the soldiers within the ranks. 
I mean, in the United States, you've probably seen pictures or videos of men who'd been drafted burning their draft cards and leaving the country. And the reason they were doing this is because they didn't believe in the mission that was being handed to them. The soldiers in the field being called to do these missions would actually rebel to the point that they were close to being insubordinate and experiencing military trial. They didn't believe in the mission that they were given to kill more than to stay alive. Now I find this fascinating because a generation earlier, World War II, men at the age of 17 were lying to try to get into the military. They were saying, get me there. My grandfather was one of them. He lied to get into the Navy at 17. Now what was the difference between the Vietnam War where many were running away and World War II where many were running to it? When the mission of World War II, it was relatively simple what the mission was. We need to overthrow the empire of Japan that has attacked our soil, which was Pearl Harbor. We need to stop Hitler and his treacherous ways in Europe. We need to stop that. And then we didn't even know the things that he was doing, only to come up find out later. But we knew the mission of World War II was far more valiant than the mission of the Vietnam War. The difference was in the mission. In both places, the bullets started flying. But in Vietnam, the people started to flee. In World War II, the bullets started flying, but the people rushed too. In any organization, bullets are going to fly. It's the reality of any organization, be it a church, business, school, sports teams. And I'm speaking metaphorically. Sadly, unfortunately, not metaphorically now. But I'm speaking metaphorically. That the going gets tough. It's not easy to be in an organization with people with conflicting views of what's, what we're supposed to be and where we're supposed to go and why we're supposed to go. And therefore, it is vitally important that the mission is very clear and compelling so that when the bullets of the organization start flying, the people start rushing to it. And that is what we're going to do for the next four weeks. We are going to try to paint the most clear and compelling picture for the mission of our church, which is to be loved and to love. It is John in 1 John 4.19 who says, We love because He first loved us. To me, this is the most significant verse in all of the Bible for me because it captures almost the entire Bible in one sentence. We love. The law of God has been given to us and we, if we were to summarize the law of God, the very thing God has called on our lives, the purpose we've been given, it is this. It is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But any who have attempted to love God with their full being and to love their neighbors as they do themselves quickly understand that this is impossible. The task given to us by God is something we so often fail to follow through, to love. And we're not even getting into the particulars. But thanks be to God who loves us first. We love, why? Because He first loved us. The greatest struggle in the church today, 
and I'm talking the church universal, is not its ability to grasp the idea to love God and to love neighbor. It is not. I'm telling you this. You will go to, from this church to other churches and people in those churches will love. The greatest struggle of every church is its willingness to be loved. To humble oneself and to allow God to be God and to allow God to be the one that meets the needs that only God can meet. And so this morning, what I want to do is to slow down and to cause us to consider the idea of being loved by God. And maybe it's very elementary. It's something that we often hear so much in churches, and that's great. But I want to slow down so that you might experience the love of God, that you might be loved by God, because it is the very condition, it is the very thing that leads us to loving God and loving others. So how or why should say why should we love be loved by God? I want two points, really just two simple points. Be loved by God first because you were made for it. Because you were made for it. Tomorrow night millions of people will gather around their television sets for the biggest night of television this year to date, and I realize it's only a weekend, but it's a big night of television. You might be thinking it's Monday Night Football, but truth be told, I'm not talking about Monday Night Football. I'm talking about The Bachelor. (laughs) Now, The Bachelor, for those of you that don't know, is a reality TV show that consists of one man dating dozens of women over the course of six weeks to see if he can find his soulmate. The dates that this man will go on, and his guy's name is Peter Weber. There we go will be set amongst some of the most breathtaking locations all around the world. Cottages on the turquoise waters of Fiji, small villages in the mountains of Tuscany, idyllic nights on the streets of L.A. that culminate in a pop star serenading the date, and they dance. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, let me tell you something. The show is filled with all sorts of drama, fascinating characters, and this introduces us to a wide range of emotions, anger, envy, pity, joy, love. It's just a fun night of television. At the end of the day, that's what it is. But the premise of, sh- what the, the premise of the show makes for good television, but I don't know if it's actually good for sa- finding your soulmate. The idea that in the course of six weeks, set amongst some of the most breathtaking dating locations, dating dozens of women, is rather one of the things that it's just preposterous to think that one could find a soulmate. In fact, I would say this idea of a soulmate being found in the opposite sex is unrealistic and rather foolish. Because the truth of one's soulmate is that you were made for one, and that is God Himself. No one who ever participates in The Bachelor, nor you or I, will ever find our soulmate here on this earth. You were made for God. See, upon creating man, Genesis tells us that man, made male and female, and I'm speaking man as in mankind, was made in the image of God. This idea that humanity was made in the image of God expresses one of two things, if not both. First, that humanity was given authority over the earth, over the land and the sea, to cultivate it, to fill it. And secondly, that that this image of God expresses this idea that we are relational beings. One scholar says that in well-functioning human community, 
Both in marriage and wider society, this image has been seen as the capacity that set man apart from other animals. Characteristics describing this such as reason, morality, language, a capacity for relationships governed by love and commitment and creativity in all forms of art. You see, being made in the image of God, we were made for relationship. And the very relationship, not the only relationship, but the very relationship we were made for is the relationship with God. And Genesis speaks on this. It says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden and there was this idyllic, beautiful serenity and this peace. And then of course when Adam and Eve disobeyed, that peace was disrupted and that relationship between God and man was ruptured. And it's the very thing that creates this hole in all of our hearts now. It's because sin is the very thing that separates us from a holy God. Yet the holy God that, that made us, that we are separated, is the very God we were made for. St. Augustine in the 5th century said this in the opening lines of his confessions, O God, You have made us for Yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in You. I want you to be loved by God because God is the very being you were made to be loved by. I want to ask you this question. Have you experienced the the inner emptiness that comes from not knowing God? This longing for love that has yet to be satisfied. I don't want you to be fooled in thinking that you'll be able to be satisfied Or this longing will be satisfied if you find the perfect spouse, a successful job, the right house, or even the right kind of church, whatever. You are made to be loved by the God of Scripture. The God that 1 John says is love. The God who created all things, sustains all things. The God who is working all things according to His purposes. You were made for this God. If you feel this emptiness, I want to encourage you to evaluate what it is that you are ultimately trying to be loved by. Whose eye are you trying to catch? Whose praises are you trying to garner? What thing, if you never capture it, or what thing, if you lose, will just break your heart if it never happens? In answering these questions, you will come to learn the very thing that you are trying to fill that inner emptiness but that will never be filled. Until we stop trying to fill this vacancy with that which is created, we will never experience the very wholeness the Creator was intended to fill. And so, my friends, be loved by God, the triune God. For the triune God was the one you were made for. If we're going to be a church that is loved by God. We have to understand, believe, and walk in that truth. But we also must see that God, secondly, secondly, that God loves you. He loves you. One of my favorite group of authors comes from a ministry called True Face. And one of the phrases that they use quite often, and it has been very helpful to me, is this. And I want you to think about this. This is not mine, but this is very important. If I don't trust you, You cannot love me no matter how much love you have for me. 
I'm going to say that again because it's very important. If I don't trust you, you cannot love me no, no matter how much love you have for me. The phrase, God loves you, is in some ways cliche in the church. Many churches will say God loves you. Many of you have probably heard it dozens, and if not hundreds, if not thousands of times, that God loves you. But here's the reality that I've come to learn as a pastor. We don't experience the love of God. We do not allow God to love us. For if God loved us, we would be far more loving to God and to others. But we aren't loving to God. And we aren't loving to others. And if we go to 1 John 4.19, it says we love because He first loved us. What's the problem? We don't experience the love of God. And yet Scripture says God loves us. God so loved the world. And so what's the problem? We don't trust God. Since we don't trust God, we cannot experience His love. And the question for us is this, why do we distrust God? And the reason I think we distrust God and we don't experience His love is because we've been conditioned to think that God's love is conditioned upon our behavior or our actions. You see, we live in a society, in a world, in which love that is garnered from one another, from our bosses, from our teachers, is garnered dependent upon how you look, how you behave, how you work, how you act, and then we project this to God. And this is not even to mention some of the Bible teachers or these churches that create this environment that which God's love is conditioned upon what you do, how you behave. Of course we're going to distrust God because if God really knew what I was like, He is not going to love me because we've been conditioned to think that. But what I love about 1 John 4, especially starting in verse 10, is that these verses smash it on its head. What I want to show you is that God's love is not dependent upon your actions, your behaviors, what you look like. It is simply dependent upon Himself. Look at what this says. I guess we can start in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, look at this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This should not be missed. What John is telling us in these two verses is that God's love for us is not dependent on anything from us. Not on our love for Him, not on our obedience to Him, not on our moral life. His love for us is actually in spite of it, in spite of you, and in spite of those actions. This love that God has, demonst- that God has for you is then demonstrated to you through the life and work of God's Son, Jesus, who created a way for us to be in right relationship with God through the sacrificial death on the cross. You see, God doesn't just say He loves you. He demonstrates and then loves you. The very thing that blocks us from relationship with God, sin, is the very thing that is satisfied through Christ. This is how we make sense of the word propitiation in this verse. It is a word often associated with ancient temple practices that dealt with the atoning 
sacrifice for sins or making one right. And so Christ Himself is our propitiation so that we might be made to be in relationship with the one we were created for. That God loves you and initiates the very thing you were made for through Christ. It's a beautiful act. God loves you despite you. He loves you because He loves you. And this is a great mystery, but it's a mystery I want you to lean into. In May of 2014, Jim Carrey surprised the graduates of Maharashi University in Iowa as their commencement speaker. Like most commencement speeches, there was a lot of wisdom shared, good jokes, especially for a guy like Jim Carrey, and then some really interesting stories. There was one story in particular that he shared that really grabbed my attention, and it came from his early childhood. He said this, I had a substitute teacher from Ireland in the second grade that told my class during morning prayer that when she wanted something, anything at all, that she would just pray for it, promising something in return, and she'd always get it. Carrie, commenting on this, said, So I'm sitting in the back of the classroom thinking, Wow, my family can't afford a bike. So I went home and prayed for it, promising to pray the rosary every night in exchange. Now for those of you that are not familiar with the rosary, it's a prayer from the Roman Catholic Church that is commended to the church. And so he was trying to, you know, I'm going to show you God. But then he says, I broke it. He says, I broke that promise. And he says, really funny. But then he says, two weeks later, I come home from school to find a brand new Mustang bike with a banana seat and easy rider handlebars. He says, I went from fool to cool. He said, my family informed me that I won the bike in a raffle that a friend of mine had entered my name in without knowing it. Now, Carrie's conclusion as to why this happened is strange, and I won't commend that to you, but I want to tell you why God did that for him. Because that's how God works. God's love and His care for us is not dependent upon our obedience to Him, our actions to Him, praying the right prayer. His love for us is because of Himself. And He has demonstrated to us through the cross how much He loves us. What is the great barrier for us experiencing the love of God? It is this inherent distrust of God. But when we see a God who is willing to move into a sinner like our lives, not because of anything we do, all we can do is take it. He loves you. Not because of anything you've done. He loves you. Because He loves you. It's simple. And it should be the very thing that should wash over you. Friends, will you stop trying to catch His eye with your right behaviors? Will you stop trying to believe that God hates you because of your behaviors or your actions? Would you just start to trust that He loves you? Trust what He says of you. His love for you is not conditioned upon you. He loves you because He loves you. Now I want to get very practical on how we experience this God who is good and gracious and loving. Very practical. And so we're going to look at three ways in which we can experience God's love day by day. Very easy, very simple. Many of you have heard this, but they're, they're the very means by which we experience God's love. 
And so three things. So first thing I want to commend to you is that we experience the love of God by praying. I'm telling you that most of the time when we think of prayer, we think of prayer simply in asking God for something we want. Now that is certainly something that Jesus Himself commanded us and commended to us to pray. We can ask God our Father for things. But for some reason, this is the way in which we focus prayer on. That it is simply just requesting God. He's like this cosmic Santa Claus. But here's the thing. Prayer is so much more than just asking God for for, for things. In fact, you might know the Lord's Prayer. And I think the way that the Lord's Prayer begins is the very thing that should teach us what it is that prayer truly is. If you're not familiar with the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer begins like this. Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. There is this great intimacy to consider God on high who is in Heaven as our Father. And it's a reorienting of our minds to consider that God Himself is our Father who cares for us, protects us, guides us. And in simply praying, our Father in Heaven, we are reorienting our mind to consider who God is. And in reorienting our mind into who God is, we begin to experience through prayer the love of God. Perhaps you are tempted to just be like, oh, prayer. I'm telling you, this happens. I'm a pastor. I hear it all the time. I'm not praying enough. What? Like, there's not this... There's not this competition or like, I'm not praying enough. What I want to tell you, if you ever be like, I'm just not praying enough. I'm just going to tell you, you're just missing out. You're missing out on reorienting your life under the lordship of the God who loves you, who cares for you and provides for you, who can be the rock in the midst of your storms. That when the bullets of your job start flying at you, that you are, can be steady because you've sat before God who is our Father in heaven. It is through prayer we experience the love of God. So my friends, don't look at prayer as this laborious task that you beat yourself up for missing on. Begin to reconsider that it is an opportunity to reorient your mind to experience the love of God. So we experience the love of God by prayer. Secondly, we experience the love of God through Scripture. We experience the love of God through reading God's Word, His Bible. The Bible is God's Word to us. It is His revelation of Himself to us in words. Through these words, He reveals to us who He is and what He has done in time and in history and what He is doing. In this Word, He has given us clear directions on how we are to live. But more than anything, it is who He is and what it is He has done for us and what He will do for us. Through the Scripture, we learn of God's love for us. It is said that God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is God's Word that is sweeter than honey. Has the Word of God penetrated your heart? And have you tasted its sweetness? It is true that you can experience God's love through His Word I mean, a few years ago, I don't mean five, I mean two, like me as the pastor of this church, I was listening to a sermon at work. 
And the sermon wasn't even on the passage that I ended up going to. But the sermon brought me to it because it helped me understand it like never before. It's a well-known passage of Scripture. It comes from Romans 1, 16-17. The verse famously states, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, I thought I grasped these words. For these are the very words that grasped the heart of Martin Luther, the great reformer who started the Protestant church of which I am a part. These are the words that the church is founded upon. I thought I understood it, but in hearing someone expound on Scripture, it is these words that grasp my heart. And I'm sitting at my desk and tears are flowing down from my face. I'm weeping like never before because this idea that I am righteous made right before God through faith, not my own doing, hit me like never before. And here I am, a pastor who believes these words, teaches these words, and so overwhelmed by the truth of Scripture, experiencing the love of God through these truths, that I'm a blubbering fool trying to hide from my, the people that share office space so they don't see me crying thinking that I've lost somebody and I have to deal with this awkward conversation. The Word of God is the very thing that I experienced His truth. Who He is and what He's done. I know that's true for many of you in this room. That you've read the Word of God. The Word of God maybe have preached to you or you've maybe understood it and it has struck your heart to the point where you can't even move. It has you spellbound. You see, that's right. Because it's sharper than any two-edged sword and sweeter than honey. We experience the love of God through His Word as the very means through which He communicates His love to us. And so for us, it is so vitally important that we value His Word. That we value it. That we read it. I want to encourage those of you that aren't doing it or maybe have put it aside, but to partner with us in our community Bible reading initiative. On the back table, you'll see a little black journal. This is a journal that will help you read the Scripture alongside one another. There's a calendar that will help you read certain passages. It's not intended for you to check boxes. It is something simply to keep you in God's Word and keep us connected through that Word. To read it. To take it in. To digest it. But we've got to read it. And certainly one of the things that's going to happen as we read it is we're going to start to realize, okay, there are many things in this Bible that I don't understand. And that's okay. Then we've got to study it. We don't just got to read it, we've got to study it. And that's why John has his Sunday school class on the Bible. And they're looking at the different books of the Bible so that you understand what it is you're reading. Because indeed, it's an ancient document. I mean, the last... The last thing that was put in this Bible comes from almost 2,000 years ago. And there's a lot of culture and history that has transpired since that time. And there are people who've been gifted to teach it. There's been books written to help you understand it. Read it. Study it. That you might continue to read it. But lastly, I encourage you to pray it. To memorize it. To put God's Word in your heart and in your mouth. One of my favorite books is a book written by Matthew Henry. He's from a long time ago, but he wrote a book called How to Pray. And all he did was he took Scripture and he wrote prayers based off of Scripture. 
It's in my bag right now. I pray the Scriptures. I encourage you to do this. Because this is the very way we experience the love of God. Through His Word. We experience the love of God through prayer. Through Scriptures. And lastly, we experience the love of God through sacraments. You're like, wait, what's a sacrament? What, what, what's this huge word, sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a holy command of Christ that was given to His church whereby sensible signs, the benefits of this new relationship, this new covenant between us and God, is represented, sealed, and applied to those who trust Him. Now in the New Testament, we see that there are two sacraments that Christ has instituted in His church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. You see, in baptism we experience the love of God because water washes over us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This water is wet. I mean, it's a very tangible expression, but it signifies something so profound. It communicates to us who have been baptized that we now belong to Christ. As Romans 6 says, that when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ. But it also represents the washing away of our sins by Christ's blood. You see, there's only one way in which we can be clean before God, righteous, and that is through the blood of Christ. And so this wet person has these beautiful truths communicated to them in very tangible ways through baptism. We experience the love of God in baptism. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Do you trust the Lord and have you been baptized? If not, I want you to experience the love of God through baptism. But there's a second sacrament, and that's the Lord's Supper. And this is something we receive each and every week. Indeed, the Lord's Supper is one of the primary ways that we experience the love of God. In the Lord's Supper, we, we have the bread and the wine, the place before us in the manner which Jesus has commanded us. And these two elements represent and communicate to all of us the manner of death that Christ died for us. A death that is sacrificial. Remember what is said to us by Christ when He instituted and created this meal. He says, take, eat, this is my body. What? Broken for you. Take, drink, this is my blood which was shed for you. Taking and eating and drinking represent to us that we take into our life Christ's life. That we are united to Him because of faith. And that because He is in us, we take His life in us. And this food and this wine nourishes us spiritually and grows us into the grace that He so often bestows upon us. And so we experience the love of God in taking the Lord's Supper. My friends, don't miss church because you don't want to miss out on the grace that comes through the Lord's Supper. There's no game to go to, gain to watch, that will satisfy your soul the way that He will satisfy your soul through His body and His blood. There's no sleep that will satisfy the restlessness of your soul. There's only the body and the blood that will do that, that very thing. I could say there's no greater brunch than the bunch of Christ, but these crackers aren't that good. I'm just kidding. You see, in this meal, we are reminded of the love of Christ. And by taking the bread and the wine, we experience the love of God. Because that when those bullets start coming, 
And they do. We don't run. We stand firm. See, if we're going to be a church on mission, a church that practices being loved and loving, we need to start with the basics. Being loved by God. Trust Him. You were made for it. He loves you. Let me pray. Our Father, we have come to learn that the sun in the sky is this ball of gas that never ceases to burn brightly and so never stops providing light to the earth. When we find ourselves in the darkness of night, it is because the earth turns, hiding us from the sun. And Lord, our lives mirror this image because the light of Jesus is always shining forth. His love for us is always there, but we turn away from it. We hide from the light of His presence and we live in the darkness. Lord, forgive us for turning and hiding. Give us hearts that long for Your love and Your light. Hearts that desire to live in Your presence by speaking with You in prayer, listening to You in Scripture, and sharing in the community that is Your community and taking Your bread and Your cup at Your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.